There are more than 100 versions of A Christmas Carol, including a video game, a 1908 short, and a TV movie, A Christmas Carol, and Zombies. In addition to the films, there are more than 20 TV shows that have used Dickens' classic as fodder for episodes, including Sanford and Son, The Six Million Dollar Man, Family Ties, Sweet Life on Deck, The Jetsons, and DuckTales. There are two ballet and four opera versions of A Christmas Carol, including The Passion of Scrooge, a chamber opera for one baritone, and chamber orchestra. There is no need to read far into the story before one understands exactly why the story is so timeless. In fact, the very first line of A Christmas Carol sits up there with the greatest beginnings ever written. That line is, Marley was dead to begin with. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, hardships, and Christmas. I am your host, Jason Nemoore Hardin. Join me as we get into the festive yuletide spirit with Charles Dickens and his monumental novel, A Christmas Carol. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year." End quote. Charles John Huffman Dickens was born in Portsmouth in Hampshire, England on February 7, 1812 as the second child of eight children of Elizabeth and John Dickens. He was born on a Friday, a day that would hold a special meaning for him, so much so that in his adolescence he constructed the myth of Friday's special child, just as he would do later for his character, David Copperfield. The myth would follow him, and as an adult, he considered Friday his lucky day. He needed to believe that he had been born with great expectations and the talent and will to realize them. Growing up, Charles was short and thin for his age, and though he possessed admirable attributes such as being clever, responsive, and sensitive, these characteristics were somewhat undershadowed by his nasal voice and the characteristic family slurring of speech, as well as a tendency to talk very quickly. Nevertheless, he did not let any of this stop him from using his voice to its full capacity. Coming from quite a musical family, his sister Fanny, showing a particular talent, was given piano and voice lessons with the prospects of a musical career. Charles himself would stand on chairs or tables and gleefully perform for his family and his father's friends. Now, he had a good way with the tune and lyrics. Match this with a voice and looks made for comedy, his acts would indeed be memorable. His father would delight in hoisting his son up on a table to entertain the guests. Sometimes he even strolled down into the lower part of town with his son just to show him off there. Charles would later remark that he must have been a horrible little nuisance to many unoffending grown-up people who were called upon to admire him. Though music was fun, theater was his guide. Living in a time where it was not yet possible to produce moving features, the stage flourished. From the city all the way to the country, from serious drama to opera to comedy, 
and established theaters and in temporary outdoor sites, the theater proved its magic time and time again, a magic that naturally caught the imagination of young Charles Dickens. Now, the first theater performance he saw seems to have been a pantomime of the likes of Joseph Grimaldi, which was the best-known clown of his childhood. Charles's dazzled eyes were wide open when he saw Grimaldi perform in London during the 1819-1820 holiday season when he was but seven years old. And one could only imagine how great it must have felt for Charles when, as an adult, he became the editor for Grimaldi's self-biography. As a youngster inspired by the theater, he brought his friends into the living room for impromptu performances of charades, pantomimes, comedies, melodramas, and magic lantern shows. As actor, director, producer, and scriptwriter, he could conceive of and control the entire world of performance. Then, in the autumn of 1821, age nine, he wrote a tragedy called Miss Snare, the Sultan of India. He enjoyed the notoriety his authorship produced in his childish circle. Then came a new friend, James Lemert, who further stimulated his imagination by organizing and directing sophisticated amateur theater acts. Perhaps more important, Lemert also took Charles to the Theater Royal, a stage on which the tragedian Edmund Keane and the comedian Charles Matthews performed. There he saw his first professional performances of serious drama. Now, soon afterwards, Shakespeare and Goldsmith became truly the first writers to spark his imagination, becoming favorites in his developing years. The Dickens household had a small library, which soon led to reading becoming a staple for young Charles to develop an internal world. It was most likely used as an escape as well, since the family money situation declined and grew dire at an alarming speed during this same period of his life. His father, John, could not maintain the family's standard of living without various small loans, most of them from tradespeople and the currency of goods and services. These loans were to be paid for in part or in full at the next payday. That he was paid quarterly made the pattern of small borrowing seem sensible. However, he soon began to find himself with more debts and anticipated expenses than cash. And Papa John also borrowed money from his mother, money to be deducted from what would be his share of her small estate. Now, in the summer of 1819, the financial struggle was even heavier. John then borrowed 200 pounds in a business arrangement to be repaid at 26 pounds a year for the rest of his life. Now, not surprisingly, he did not keep up with the payments. His brother-in-law, however, who had countersigned the loan, was forced to retire it in full in 1821, and John Dickens, unfortunately, never repaid him. By June 1822, the family was on the move again, this time headed for London. Doubts and fears bloomed in Charles Dickens' ten-year-old mind. Where would they live? What school would he go to? Would he have friends, people to care for him, to nurture his sensibility and his aspirations? Well, unexpectedly, at the last moment, a special arrangement was made for Charles. He would not go to London with the family after all. Rather, he would stay with schoolmaster William Giles and attend school in Chatham for another quarter. Now, given a temporary reprieve, he had one last summer in Kent. Three months later, 
his teacher gave him a book of essays by Goldsmith as a going-away present. On a dismal day in September 1822, he was packed into a coach headed for London. Of this, Dickens wrote, there was no other inside passenger, and I consumed my sandwiches in solitude and dreariness, and it rained hard all the way, and I thought life sloppier than I had expected to find it. Upon being delivered to his parents' new home at 16 Bayham Street, Camden Town, he was met with the usual disorder, the chaos of domestic and financial confusion. With his salary insufficient to pay current expenses or previous obligations, John Dickens struggled to pay an outstanding bond, thus the pursuit of new loans continued. Without capital, the family had only its labor to offer. With John Dickens fully engaged, his mother Elizabeth failing to gain sufficient employment, his siblings Alfred, Frederick, and Lalita being too young to help, Charles, nearly 12 years old, seemed to be the family's only shot. In a society where child labor provided an opportunity for additional income for hard-pressed families, as well as a capital advantage for eager employers, Charles was put to work. He was offered employment in a shoe polish factory and warehouse with a salary of six shillings a week. His parents accepted the arrangement on their son's behalf, and soon after his twelfth birthday, probably by mid-February 1824, he began the daily grind at Warren's Blacking. He had no love for the work and felt, rightfully, that he should have been at school, like his sister, neatly and appropriately dressed and with the opportunity to socialize with children his own age instead of being stuck in what he referred to as a crazy tumbled-down old house on the river, literally overrun with rats. Well, things would not get any better any time soon. Suddenly, his father's fragile house of debt collapsed. Arrested on February 20th, 1824, for failure to pay 40 pounds to his neighborhood baker, three days later, he was moved from a temporary jail to the Marshalsea prison on the south side of the Thames. Many of the family possessions, including the small library Charles had cherished so much, were pawned or sold. Only one solution was available. John Dickens had to declare himself an insolvent debtor even at the cost of submitting his family to the humiliation of the Insolvent Debtors Act's provision that the possessions of the family not be valued at more than 20 pounds. Initiated in early March, a slow legal proceeding followed. The family's possessions, even the clothes Charles wore to work, were assessed. John Dickens was then released from prison per Insolvency Act on May 28, 1824. Now, while his father was in prison, young Charles had been earning his own living, trudging the five miles from Gower Street to the shoe polish factory and back each day through much of February and March. Despite not being ready to be an adult, he was forced into trying to think and perform like one. Constantly underfed, he sniffed hungrily at the food in the London stores and streets. 
He played mental games about whether to buy one type of pudding or another, or to buy attractive food now and have no money later, or to buy attractive food later and have no food now, or to act like a grown-up and plan sensibly. Occasionally, he regaled himself with a treat, like coffee and bread and butter in a coffee room, but this memory would later act as a searing reminder of his loneliness and degradation. He could not buy what he desperately needed, parental attention and the security of a home. His few schoolboy clothes became increasingly shabby and he detested the difficult-to-remove-and-defiling polish that grimed his hands and fingernails. As an adult, he obsessed about cleanliness and about his clothes, from the dandy splendor of his twenties and thirties to the elegant seriousness of his later style. Twelve years old, and he was still short and noticeably slight in bill, and sometimes was prone to experiencing attacks of severe pain on his left side. During one severe spasm, his fellow workers compassionately attended to him. Still, he had this sense of feeling frighteningly alone. Through much of his life, at times of emotional stress, the attacks would return. His deliverance from the blacking factory was as unpredictable as it was bewildering. For reasons he never learned, his father quarreled with the manager of the factory. Perhaps John's pride had been offended by learning that his son worked by the window in full public view. Regardless of the reason, John Dickens seemed more concerned about himself than his son, which came particularly across as his anger was placed in a letter that Charles was forced to deliver to his boss. With characteristic self-indulgence, John could not have been thinking of his son's situation when he made him the bearer of the letter, since it was predictable that Charles would feel the force of his boss's anger, even if it was not directed at him. In February 1830, immediately after his 18th birthday, he obtained an admission ticket to the British Museum, where he became a regular for the next year. He was still as avid a reader as he had been as a child in Chatham, and now devoted himself for some time to as much general literature as he could find in the library of the British Museum. His range of reading material was wide, from Shakespeare to Goldsmith to Holbein to lights and shadows of Scottish life. His goal was not to be like his father. The obvious way of doing that was to avoid debt, to transform his labor into capital, to earn adequate money through initiative, diligence, and achievement. Tutored by his uncle, he had no difficulty adding to his reading at the British Museum the challenge of learning the well-established gurney system of shorthand writing. Furthermore, he soon had regular work as a freelance court stenographer. By early 1831, in time to help with the task of recording the first of the Reform Bill debates, his cooperative uncle elevated his nephew to the staff of the Mirror of Parliament. From there, he began to take his turn in the galleries, often working through the night. Fortunately, not only did one not need a degree to practice journalism, but as a profession, it had the flexibility, fluidity, and openness to reward talent and hard work, which suited Dickens perfectly. Of course, being a parliamentary reporter meant stenography more than creativity, but he didn't mind that. Suddenly, he had more than a job. 
He had a vocation, and soon his writing talents would give way to the creativity he was yearning for. Putting it bluntly, he wrote A Christmas Carol because he needed the money. He'd found literary fame due to the success of the Pickwick Papers and Oliver Twist, but his latest book, Martin Chuzzlewit, serialized between January 1843 and July 1844, had not been as successful as his prior entries. The facts were that he had a wife and four children to support, and his wife, Catherine, was pregnant with a fifth child. Doing his best to stretch his money as far as he could, he came up with the idea of renting out the family's London home and live on the continent for a year. A Christmas Carol was written with the intention to fund this move. A story of spirits who appear at Christmas time was not invented by Dickens, however. For centuries, during the longest and darkest nights of the year, it was thought that the barrier between this world and the afterlife was at its thinnest. Much like El Dia de los Muertos in Mexican and Latin American folklore, this was the time for ghosts to show themselves to the living. And despite not coming up with the concept, however, he considerably expanded on the legend, pushing the envelope. Moralizing and Christianizing traditions of the supernatural drawn from Gothic fiction, he created a social fable in which the supernatural structure of spirits and demons was stretched enough not to offend Christians, yet loose enough to be acceptable to secularists, which was its strength. Now, having been brought up in a nominally Anglican household, he associated organized religion with stale custom at best and with repressive fanaticism at worst. He believed that the best way to educate the public about social ills was to tell them stories about these conditions. Similar to the Great Depression during the 1930s in the United States, the 1840s in England were referred to as the Hungry Forties. Now, this moniker was brought on by consecutive seasons of failed crops. He was horrified by the poverty and suffering he saw, particularly while visiting Manchester. There he learned of and was disturbed by what were called ragged schools, which were free schools for the poor. He was very concerned with what author Thomas Carlyle called the condition of England, which referred to the disparity between the rich and the working and poor classes, the Industrial Revolution, the UK report on child labor in 1843. So, despite being motivated to write A Christmas Carol by his own financial needs to provide for his growing family, it was also an attempt to bring about social change, which is one of the reasons why it resonated then and continues to resonate with audiences. A third component of the story is how he inserted his own memories of cold English winters as well as memories of celebrating Christmas at Crew Hall. You see, today we celebrate Christmas, but during the 18th and 19th century, it was more traditional to celebrate what was referred to as Epiphany. Also known as Theophany in Eastern Christian tradition, Epiphany is a Christian feast day commemorating the visit of the Magi the baptism of Jesus, and the wedding at Cana. It was Dickens' novel which tapped into a nostalgia that people were feeling as it contributed to defining Christmas. This contribution helped the status of the Christmas holiday and helped it become the celebration it is today. 
So, he's the reason my bank account dwindles at the end of each year. Dickens. Charles Dickens was 31 years old when the first edition of A Christmas Carol was published on December 19th, 1843. Upon publishing, he had his 66-page heavily revised handwritten manuscript bound in crimson leather and decorated in gilt before gifting it to his friend and creditor, Thomas Mitton, whose name was also inscribed on the cover in gilt. Now, for those of you like me who did not know the term gilt, and quite frankly never heard of it until today, simply put, it's a thin layer of gold. I do my best to learn something new every day. Moving on. Now, while he was originally frustrated with how slowly his publishers were willing to finalize the book, it was an instant success with the public upon publication. Though it was very successful, it made unexpectedly small profits as a result of production costs. This profoundly disappointed Mr. Dickens. Well, why wouldn't it? It led him to having to borrow money to make the ends meet. Furious, he blamed his publishers Chapman and Hall for inflating the cost of production, even though it must be said that he himself dictated the format. He was very fastidious about the end papers and how the book was bound. Consequently, the price of materials took a big chunk out of his potential profits. Nevertheless, he told Chapman and Hall, quote, Keep away from me and be damned, before he negotiated a contract with Bradbury and Evans, which was, ironically, similar to the arrangement that he had made with Chapman and Hall four years earlier when, get this, he had wanted help in freeing himself from his prior publishing contract. Way to go, Charles. Some of this anger resulted from the still raw wound of financial vulnerability, as well as the memories of his childhood poverty and the pressures of maintaining an expensive family and entourage on his earnings as a writer. Then, one could only guess, perhaps to his delight, on June 1, 1844, his new publisher agreed to advance him £2,800 against the security of a £2,000 life insurance policy and for a fourth share in whatever he might write during the next eight years. In regard to routine, he kept to the same hours every day without change. As his eldest son said, no city clerk was ever more methodical or orderly than he. No humdrum, monotonous, conventional task could ever have been discharged with more punctuality or with more business-like regularity than he gave to the work of his imagination and fancy. As such, Dickens treated writing much like any day job. He woke up at 7 a.m., had breakfast at 8 a.m., and sat down to work in his study by 9 a.m. He would work without pause until 2 p.m. when he would stop for lunch and embark on a daily three-hour walk around London. These walks were integral to his success as a writer. Not only did they provide him with space to muse on his writing and consider future developments, they were also key to his unrivaled knowledge of the city. The use of plan sheets was a particularly detailed process. Michael Slater describes Dickens' planning process in his biography. 
For each number, monthly installment, he prepared a sheet of paper approximately seven by nine inches by turning it sideways with the long side horizontal, dividing it in two, and then using the left-hand side for what he called mems. These were a memoranda to himself about events and scenes that might feature in the number, directions as to the pace of the narrative, particular phrases he wanted to work in, questions to himself about whether such and such a character should appear in this number or be kept waiting in the wings, usually with some such answer as yes, no, or not yet added later. On the right-hand side of the sheet, Dickens would generally write the numbers and titles of the three chapters that make up each monthly part and jot down, either before or after writing them, the names of the main characters and events featuring in each chapter, with occasionally a crucial fragment of the dialogue. What he used then was not a detailed plan for every aspect of his stories, but rather a rough outline of key events characters, and plot points. Now, this was important as it allowed him to ensure that plot progression was planned at large, while also permitting alterations as feedback was received from his audience. These plan sheets were further supplemented by pages of working notes in which he outlined his larger structure, developed salient character details, and took note of any symbolism that he particularly wished to incorporate. His writing habits were reflections of the literary demands of the time. He did not have the luxury of taking his time and making as many edits as he desired. Instead, he was required to ensure that his creativity could operate on a stringent schedule. So this strict daily regiment and structured approach to planning were necessities in ensuring that he could keep up with the deadlines more than pushed forth by desire. Still, he made sure to include time to find inspiration in his London surroundings. As usual, let's conclude this episode with a quote from the Christmas storyteller himself. Whatever I have tried to do in life, I have tried with all my heart to do it well. Whatever I have devoted myself to, I have devoted myself completely. In great aims and in small, I have always thoroughly been in earnest. End quote. Okay, okay, don't tear me down for giving Dickens a touch of a Southern American accent. I promise you, you don't want to hear my attempt at a British one. Trust me, it's laughable. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason and Moore Harden. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page at House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Have a joyous and wonderful holiday season. Until next time, keep turning them their pages. House of Words is written and produced by Christo M. Sanchez. Narrated and edited by me, Jason Nemore Harden. 
Music by Creature 9 and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemo Harden.